So good. It's so good to hear what the Lord is doing. I don't know about you. Are, are you happy to be here this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want you to know that you've got permission to talk back to me, all right? We're going to have some fun this morning. We're going to continue in our series called Culture of Family. You know, we've been talking about experiencing that real, emotional, tangible uh, love of the Father and, and immersing ourselves in that and, and learning that the heart of our Father is for us to experience that, not just to understand that on an intellectual or a theoretical level, but to, to literally feel that and be renewed in that and, and see our intimacy grow and be set free in that environment. Last week, we, we talked uh, from Romans 8, 15 and 16, and Romans 5, 5, and we talked about the spirit of slavery that keeps us it, relating to God in fear, and we talked about the spirit of adoption that allows us to experience sonship and daughterhood. You know, before we really get into it, I want to tell you a story. Last week, uh, Stephanie and I and the kids, we were on vacation. We went down to Jamaica, and we had an amazing time. Last week, you know, Pastor Clark began uh, by just uh, this really touching, like, I want to thank Pastor Kyle and Stephanie personally. I thought there was going to be something serious, but he just thanked us that it was warm outside. And, uh, you know, maybe we were, you know, we put it in our suitcase and brought it home. So it lasted a week. Maybe we need to go back and do it again, right? Until the springtime. But we were we're down in Jamaica, and uh, you know we were having this great time. And before we went, I connected with somebody through Facebook, and uh, just a local individual, and, and we got to talking. And he invited me to come and do a little bit of teaching while I was there. So I agreed to do that. And before we went, I googled to see how far away this place was from the resort that we were staying at. So I went to the resort, you know, front lobby, the front desk, and I asked them, "How much is it going to cost me to get a cab from here?" To there, and I'm fully aware that as a tourist asking about cab prices at the front desk of a resort, I'm not getting the local price. I understand that I'm paying a little bit more, but I had I had Googled it, and it was 12 kilometers from where we were staying, the place that I wanted it, wanted to go to, and they told me it was going to be $80 US. $80, like that's ridiculous, right? And I was like, no, 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 it was 12 kilometers away where I want to go. Well, it's not that simple, sir. You see the roads here. Anyway, anyway, I, I went back and I sent a message to this guy and I said, look, it's just 80 bucks US. That's way too much for me for this one-time thing. It's not going to work. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll come and pick you up. And at first I was like, oh, okay, great. And then I began to think about it. And I was like, well, he's going to pick me up in the daytime. And, you know, I, I know him through Facebook. And maybe, the, you know, he's going to bring me back after dark. Maybe this isn't the best idea. So we talked about it. And we put some safety measures in place. We were like, okay, yeah, it's worth it. We're, I'm going to go. And so, so I went off. And I got picked up by this guy. And I just had this incredible experience. As soon as we crossed the boundary of the resort that we were staying on, as soon as we got Got out of the tourist area, my experience in Jamaica was entirely different than my experience at the resort. Right? Like, if I hadn't gone uh, uh, beyond those gates, I still would have had a Jamaican experience. Nobody would contest that I wasn't within their geographical boundaries, that I wasn't served local food by citizens of that country. Like, that's still a Jamaican experience. But my experience beyond the gate was so much more than I had at the resort. And I've got some pretty crazy stories of what, what happened that night, and I, we won't go there. But, but I began to think about it in terms of the Series that we're going through, that there's, that there's this possibility that we can treat our conversion, 
our salvation as it's all that God has to offer us. But there's a level of relationship, that of son and daughter, that we need to experience that's above and beyond that if we are to enjoy life in Christ to the full. I want to take a look at the, this diagram on the next slide here. Awesome. Now, some of you are familiar with this diagram. We've taken a look at this to, to some extent as a church family, and it's labeled their intimacy with the Father. And it just reminded me about this journey that we're taking, the Israelites. You know, this journey here is about the Israelites who were set free from slavery in Egypt. Egypt, and God delivered them from Egypt to the desert, right? They got to the desert, and they hung out there for quite some time, and although they had been saved, right, they had been delivered, that wasn't their final destination, was it? God had a plan to bring them all the way to the promised land, all the way to the destiny, and I I believe that there's, there's this danger that we can face, that if we treat our conversion as if God says, you're saved, I'll see you when you die, that we're missing out on his plan for our life, and this freedom, and this joy, and this fulfillment that exists for us. You know, if we don't do that, we can often find ourselves struggling with sin, Maybe compulsive habits like alcoholism or workaholism, sex additions, uh, uh, excessive need for entertainment or sports involvement. And then then these symptoms, these sins can be uh, accompanied by brooding feelings of anger, feelings of not measuring up to God's expectations. And as anger grows, it's expressed in symptoms like domineering behavior, passive behavior, explosive temper, depression, or being frustrated by the shortcomings of others. And we've seen over the last number of weeks how, how these difficulties which occur in those living as slaves or as orphans rather than sons of daughters, can be healed and corrected by experiencing the Father's love and the Spirit's witness of our spiritual adoption. And the Father's love is that very source of sanctification that we need. So I've got a question for you. How many people here believe that by doing more Bible study, more prayer, and more church and service and attendance, that you will become more godly? How many people believe that? Good because you won't, right? All of those things on their own are good things, but they're only designed as a means for us to discover the Father's love. And it's only His gracious filling of that longing for love at the core of our being that can make us holy. And so our job, the only thing that we can do is to posture ourselves to receive. And the challenge is that that's difficult for us. You know, there's a story about a man named George, and he was a poor seminary student, and he had a friend named Mike, and they went and they played racquetball uh, quite frequently together, and one day George uh, got to the racquetball court, and Mike saw that he was wearing casual shoes instead of running shoes, and he said, what's the deal with your shoes? And he said, well, I blew them out, they're not working anymore, Uh, I I just can't afford to replace them. And so they play racquetball, Uh, I'm sure George was somewhat uncomfortable wearing his casual shoes, and after their time together, Mike calls George's wife and he says, what size is your husband's shoe? 
What's his shoe size? And he does this lovely, you know, incredibly generous and gracious thing and just buys him a pair of running shoes. Except George can't just receive the running shoes. Not a week later, uh, Mike and his wife are invited over for dinner. And not only does he serve them dinner, but he has presents. He has gifts that are sitting and waiting for them on the table. And although that in and of itself isn't a bad thing, it was rooted in the fact that George just couldn't receive the gift. He felt a need to repay it. Only receiving the Father's love as a gift can free us from the flesh, from sinful pleasures. And it's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we can, that we can repay. It's something that we only receive. And all of the external holiness in the world still leaves a void. And that brings us to John chapter 8, where we're going to camp out this morning for some time. We're going to talk about how there is an enemy who lives to rob us of that experience that brings healing and intimacy with the Father and wants to use the frustration to take our lives. So let's read together, starting John 8, verse 31. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and never have been in bondage to anyone. How is it that you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. And I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, but that this is not what Abraham did. You do what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and came forth from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you un- not understand what I say? Is it, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Just a little light reading this morning. You know, before we were were born, Satan designed against us ever experiencing the father's love. He brought pain and suffering to the generations before us in a way that impact our lives. He has lured our ancestors into sin, broke them through life situations, and even robbed them of their lives, all to steal the father's children a chance to experience his love. 
And joyless, duty-bound, performance-oriented, fear-motivated Christians are most vulnerable to his attacks. His prime focus is to prevent us from experiencing the Father's love because he knows that if we experience it, we are a threat to him. If we experience the Father's love, he is scared of what will happen because when we become intimate with our Father, we are able to see what he's doing and we find ourselves executing his will and power and the kingdom of God moves forward. We know that God has a plan for our lives, right? Like we know that and we know that it's good, right? Yes? Do we know that? Yeah? God has a plan for our life, and it's good. But Satan also has a plan for our life as well. And from before we were born, he began to scheme it. That doesn't mean we need to be fearful, because we know that God is victorious. But he planned our failure to enter God's kingdom first and foremost. His first plan was to prevent you from coming to a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you sit in this place this morning, and you've confessed Jesus with your mouth, and you've believed in your heart that Jesus died for your sin, then you are saved, and you have foiled the primary plan of the enemy. But when you foiled that plan, he had a backup plan, and that was to make sure that we don't experience the Father's love. And the way that he tries to accomplish this is by facilitating the construction of barriers. John 8:44 says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. In fact, we might say that he's a false father. He reigns as a false father, giving people experiences that substitute for real love and joy. And there is no purpose in him, and there is no truth in him other than murder. Satan is real, and he wants to rob us of the Father's love, to keep us bound as a slave and distant as an orphan. He wanted us to hang out in Egypt, but we were delivered from Egypt, and we've made it to the desert. Now it's his purpose to make sure that we don't experience that deliverance from the desert to the promised land where we are sons and daughters. He wants to convince us that either Christianity can't produce the joy that it says it can, or he wants to help you live a lie pretending that you're joyful when you're not really experiencing it. He doesn't want you to feel loved by God, because any Christian who knows their father and walks in his love, his power, hearing his voice and doing his will, has a place of, from a place of security, is a danger to the enemy. So he began to construct some barriers in humanity in order to prevent humanity from moving from that place of just salvation to experiencing the spirit of adoption, being sons and daughters. And he does that for the first time in Genesis 3, 4 to 5. You know, uh, one of the results of somebody lying to you and you believing a lie is a false uh, belief that impacts your life in some way. And I asked Steph if it was okay if I shared this story. But she, she mentioned to me this week, she went to the Nick Smith Center with Sophie to go swimming. And, uh, and Sophie asked her, why is she walking with her toes all curled up and her, you know, the balls of her feet off of the pool deck? And uh, Steph said that when she was a young child, somebody told her that if you were to walk on a pool deck, you would get planter's warts. 
And so because she believed that lie, she began to practice walking without most of her foot on the floor. And to this day, she still does it. Even though she's, you know, she's thought about it, she's bought into that lie. And you know, I'm just going to shove that foot down. And you're not going to get planner's warts and we're going to break free from that. But the result of believing a lie is it impacts our life in a way where, where our enjoyment, where the initial purpose is something that we miss out on. And so Satan does this. In Genesis 3, 4, 5, he essentially says to Eve, God's deceiving you just a bit. He's talking about how you can't have the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's saying, he's saying God's deceiving you a little bit because uh, his, his order, like the command that he's given you, is just so that you aren't equal with him. Now, the lie is this, that God isn't a good father. Satan convinces Eve and eventually Adam that, that he, God is holding back from them something that would bring them joy. He says you can't trust his word. And isn't trusting the word of God the core of every problem that we face as a Christian in drawing close to God and obeying his word? You know, there's this voice in our head that we, that we might hear that say, it can't be this good, can it? God doesn't really touch his children, does he? There isn't as much joy in being in God's presence as there is in having an affair or watching another hockey game, is there? Trust. Belief that obeys. That's at the core. Eve bought the lie and so did Adam. And the lies have gotten more widespread and diversified ever since. And so flowing from that lie was a barrier. Genesis 3.10 says, I heard you in the garden. This is Adam speaking to God. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Resulting from the first lie was the first barrier and it was fear. Fear is the first barrier that Satan helped erect between man and God. That's why when we read in the book of Romans, chapter 8, 15, we read about the spirit of slavery that causes us to fall back into fear. It has to be replaced with the spirit of adoption. Conversion, our conversion experience reconciles us to God, but it doesn't guarantee intimacy. On that graph where we go uh, from, from Egypt to the desert, conversion reconciles us with God, but there's a place of intimacy that's greater that he's calling us to. We used to live as slaves of sin when we were not saved, but there might be a tendency in us to live as slaves of God. You know, we can be saved and still live under a spirit of slavery and do the right things in our life with enough infusion of Bible study, prayer, fellowship, church attendance, and everything seems okay, doesn't it? But the second that we stop feeding that constant infusion of, uh, of good things on their own, sin rushes back in. And because we feel trapped and guilty for failure, we become more and more distant with God. Just going through the motions to, say, to stay saved rather than enjoying our relationship with the Father. Church, we need to experience adoption. We need the Holy Spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of the Father and where, and where he takes us and places us in the Father's presence where we hear him say, you are my daughter and honey, I love you. We need to be in a place of relationship with God the Father where we say, where we literally hear God say, you are my son and I love you. I am proud of you. 
Look, if we don't get rid of the fear barrier, we live under this feeling that if I don't do this for God, he won't love me. He'll punish me. So we need to be careful not to label manifestations of God's spirit as emotionalism. Right? Because when we label manifestations of the Spirit as emotionalism, we're living under this spirit of fear where we, don't, uh, where we don't trust what God is doing and we miss out on what Holy Spirit wants to do in us in that moment. And I'm aware that there are manifestations that are drummed up and that are man-made and they need to be gently corrected, but we need to welcome the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in this place so that we can experience what He has for us. So the first barrier that existed was fear, and that resulted from the first lie that we can't trust God. And the second lie that Satan has convinced our culture, our church, not our church specifically, but capital C Church of in North America, is that Father God isn't the God that the Bible says he is. Satan tries to convince us that God is someone that he's not through false teaching. One example I'm going to give to you is that uh, God is often portrayed as a pharaoh-type God as opposed to a prodigal-type God. In this model, God is viewed as the kind of father who places a heavy yoke, a heavy burden upon his children and demands this extreme amount of sacrifice for the kingdom. You know, if we believe that, we believe that a failure, even when the heart is right, is going to be met with anything from a rebuke to judgment. And it's a general feeling that that God watches my every move, but he's doing it so that he can see when I make a mistake and punish me. You know, there's another uh, type of father that God is sometimes portrayed as, and that's the predictable father. In this view, the uh, uh, Holy Spirit is restricted to inner workings inside us that are undemonstrative. We put the Holy Spirit in a box and we say that surely God's will is to not make me uncomfortable and he's not going to do anything that's outside of our plan or our service order or routine. And you know, I'm not sure if God actually does all of that charismatic, supernatural stuff, but I'm sure that even if he did, the commotion would disturb us and I'm pretty sure God's intent is for us to be comfortable. That's the predictable father. You know, and I think it's time the church would to purpose in their hearts to say that it's just, it's time to allow the spirit of the father to do whatever he wants to do. Now, I don't know what your experience is, what your experience is, is, pardon me, but I find that his plans are generally better than my plans. And the, 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 the things that I can dream up of in terms of what Holy Spirit should do and what Father God should do, that, that they fall short of what he actually does when I give him permission and room to move. You know, of course, uh, we do watch out for those, uh, those, those drummed-up man-made manifestations But we also know that Holy Spirit is a surprising spirit. And we take a look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we see these disciples who are waiting in an upper room, and then Holy Spirit descends upon them like uh, flames upon their head, and they begin to speak in tongues that they otherwise did not know, and they begin to speak in languages that they do not know, and they go out into a volatile crowd and preach, and 5,000 plus people are saved. Father God is not a predictable father. Another false teaching that's very common in our churches is that of the emotionless father. 
And that's the view that our father is packaged into that. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember that old uh, faith tract? It was the train, and it was the faith facts feeling train. Anybody ever see that years ago, the faith facts feeling train? Yeah, well, well it, the, the faith, the facts were the engine, and the faith was the coal car, and then the feelings were the caboose for the people in the back. Right? And it was just this idea that we need to dismiss the caboose. And, and, and something happens that we lose a part of our humanity and our experience when we say, either with our words or in any nonverbal communication, no feelings in church, please. You know, Father God isn't an emotionless father. He actually created emotion. He actually created emotion for us to experience. And so when we say, no feelings in church, please, we can't be surprised when we have men that are addicted to sports, where it's socially acceptable to express emotion. One example of this that you might find is just this idea of forgiveness, that it's solely a legal act that's purely objective. I don't know how many people here have had an experience where they have felt uh, where they have still felt guilty for their sin even after they've been forgiven for it. I mean, I can relate to, to an experience like that. And maybe somebody comes up to you and says, well, God's word says that he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so just take him at his word. Now, that's a statement that's true, isn't it? That's a statement that's true. It's full of fact. It's not wrong. But how many people here have had the experience where you know in your head, intellectually, theoretically, you've understood that you have been forgiven, but you still carry around this weight of guilt? I think something that we need to do as a body of believers is to just lay hands on one another. And when we confess our sins, to look somebody in the face and say, according to your confession, I pronounce you forgiven in the name of Jesus. And then pray for the Father to immerse that person in his love so that they would feel his forgiveness. You know, I believe that, of course, we are forgiven for that sin. But there's a further healing. There's a further deliverance. There's that further release where where God sets us free from the, the feeling of guilt that we have associated with the sin. I want to tell you a story. And I'm going to assure you that the names in this story have been changed so you do not recognize who I'm speaking of, but there's a a woman, and we're going to call her Cindy. And Cindy had an abortion when she was young, and she had been suffering from debilitating guilt for 20 years, and she finally told her pastor, uh, we'll call him Bob, she finally told her pastor Bob about it. And Bob gave her all of the related scriptures that he could think of and you know, read them to her and said, you need to meditate upon this and, and rid yourself of the guilt and just believe that you are forgiven. And she tried and she tried, but she still carried this weight with her. And so Bob called his friend Nate, who had ministered in situations like this before. And they all sat down at a table and she told her story. And with a gentle voice, he said, Cindy, do you know what the Bible calls what you've done? Do you know what the Bible calls your sin? And she said, yes, it's murder. And she began to cry. And so he says, will you confess that sin and ask for God to forgive you in front of us now? And she agreed. And when she had prayed, Nate said, now look at me. And Cindy really struggled to look at Nate. And he said, but no, I need you as hard as it is to just look in my eyes for a moment. And when she did... He said, he said, Cindy, 
According to your confession, I pronounce you forgiven in the name of Jesus. And instantly she just broke down and began to weep in relief. And she testified that there was this immediate weightlessness that she began to experience where that the weight of that sin had been lifted off her. You know, and I can testify personally, not to this subject matter, of course, but to that feeling of knowing that I had been forgiven of my sin on an intellectual level. When I became a Christian in university, I understood that Jesus had forgiven my sin. I understood that his blood cleansed me from all righteousness. I understood that when he said, it is finished on the cross, he didn't mean it is finished except for Kyle Donnelly, and there's got to be an extra shift paid on the cross for the sin that, that, that Kyle ends up committing. I knew that in my head. I knew that in a theoretical capacity. But the reality is, if I'm honest with you, I still felt weighed down by the guilt of that sin. So within the context of a group of Christians that knew me and I knew them and we trusted one another and we loved one another, we began to confess those sins to one another and pray for one another and forgive one another in the name of Jesus. And I felt this real, tangible, emotion-full experience where that weight that I had been carrying, I knew that I was forgiven already, but that the weight of the guilt that I felt had been lifted off. And when we bring sin into the light, it loses its power. It loses its stranglehold that it has over us. Father God is not an emotionless father. He's emotionful. And it's good for us to experience and express that emotion. We need to celebrate together that God has made us so that we can feel his love and forgiveness. And that we have a range of emotion that enriches our lives. You know, if this dichotomy exists that we can't express emotion in church, but we can, as men, express emotion when we're watching sports, no wonder there's this, this unhealthy balance. And now, I'm not saying that expressing emotion in a sports arena is an unhealthy thing. I'm not. I'm going to admit that in 2016, Game 5 of the ALDS series, when the Blue Jays beat the Texas Rangers, I cried. All right, I did, and I had te- it was a silent cry. The tears were running down my cheeks, and Steph looked over at me. She's like, are you crying? And it was like, like it, was, it carried some weight for me, all right? It was important to me. But that's not the only environment in which I express emotion. That would be unhealthy. When we deny our emotions, we limit the experience of Father God's love that we're able to receive. You know, this week, we've been, we've been talking about the experience of the love of the Father. Last week, we talked about how we can literally feel that, how we can be a part of that, how that sets us free. And we, began, we continued that discussion today. And we began to look at some of the lies that we might have bought into that have resulted in barriers where we can't experience the Father's love. Maybe you found yourself in a place where you say, yes, I want to experience that. It's the desire of my heart, but for some reason it hasn't worked. One of the reasons might be that there's a barrier that's been constructed in your life that you have because you've believed a lie. And that's why we've begun a discussion today about what those lies are and what the resulting barriers are. Next week, we're going to continue that discussion. This is part one of a two-part sermon. It is too large of a topic to cover all in one morning, but we're going to continue that conversation, and we are going to conclude by experiencing freedom in each of those areas. I want to leave you with that, with that hope. I want to give you some hope, encourage you to come back and be a part of us, of what we're doing next week.
you know, as Stephanie, I'm going to invite Stephanie to come up and her team as well to lead us in one song. I'm going to give you a to-do item just very shortly. But as, as we were singing that last song, uh, before I came up and, and before Joan came and gave a testimony, there was that one line in it, and it said, Abba, I belong to you. And I don't know if you know the context of the word Abba, but, but there are many words that we have to describe a father, Right? Like we can say father, we can say uh, dad, we can, you know, some in a very formal uh, uh, capacity might say sir. You know, I think my dad might have grown up calling his father sir. Uh, and, and there's another term that's often used, and it's daddy. And it's often used by really little kids, right? And I, I remember there was uh, one morning in particular where I was at church and, and Steph was walking here with the kids. And so they were a little bit late. And as they came in to the sanctuary, I was in the front row and worshiping. And Sophie, uh, she, she just turned five on Friday, but she was probably three or four at the time. She ran through the doors and jumped into my arms and yelled, Daddy! And there was somebody in our congregation afterwards that shared with us how the Lord just revealed to her in that moment that that's the relationship that, she, that he desires for us to have with him. That we would cry, Daddy God, Abba Father, and run into his arms. And that line, Abba, I belong to you, was so powerful. And it just gave me this picture of us running into a relationship of sonship and daughterhood, and experiencing what Father God has for us beyond our conversion and beyond our salvation. Now, I'm going to invite Stephanie and the worship team to sing one more song, and as they do that, they're going to sing it over you. And so I'm going to ask you to remain seated, but in your bulletin, there's this little insert. And so could you do me a favor and pull that out right now? And I want to give you a little bit of Monday morning application, and we're going to start it right now. This is our homework for this week. I want to take some time, and on your sheet of paper, it's going to have two steps. One and two, it might say three and four, you're not missing something, it's just a typo. But steps one and two, and what we're going to do is commit in our hearts to spend time with the Lord this week and just ask Him, are there barriers that exist in my life because I've believed a lie that have prohibited me from experiencing your love? or experiencing a greater degree, a greater release of your love that you have for me. And the second task that you have is to ask somebody that you love and trust and is a mature believer, is there a barrier that you see in my life or are there symptoms of a barrier in my life? So I'm going to invite us to just begin that now and spend some time praying over that, thinking about that, spending a few moments with the Lord while Stephanie and the team leads us in one song.